Take a network break. A virtual donut or two is a nice way to get your mind off polar vortexes, murder hornets, and a global pandemic. We've got stories today on Cumulus Networks, Arista, Space Lasers, and more. Just a little business first. Service Express is a leader in third-party data center maintenance. You can lower your support costs, extend the life of your hardware, and save up to 70% on server, storage, and network maintenance. Visit serviceexpress.com slash packetpushers to learn more and find out how you can win a $50 Amazon gift card. That's serviceexpress.com slash packet pushers. Stay tuned after the news. We've got a sponsored TechBytes conversation with Megaport. Megaport provides global cloud connectivity, data center interconnect, and internet exchange peering. And we're going to talk to them about the services they offer and how Megaport can support your remote work needs. Last but not least, we have a new course on Ignition. It's on SD Access. It's by Phil Gervasi. He's got an eight-lesson course that introduces you to SD Access, the key components and protocols, day zero deployment, and more. It's included in your annual $99 subscription fee. Find out more about that at Ignition. Plus, we've got a ton of other courses and content and white papers up there on Ignition, so go check it out. Mm, good stuff. Glad it's growing. Bit by bit. Yes. Adding to the step library. Step by step. Yep. All right, let's do the news. Uh, hard on the heels of closing its Mellanox acquisition, NVIDIA has bought Cumulus Networks for an undisclosed amount. Cumulus Networks develops Cumulus Linux. This is a disaggregated network OS that runs on Ethernet switch hardware from a number of vendors. And almost the vendor that single-handedly brought Linux to the switch, I think, would be a fair comment. They started five years ago bringing Linux to the switch and saying the point about Cumulus was why are you learning some Yankee CLI? Why don't you just learn Linux and then you could run your switches the same way you do your Linux servers? That's right. It allows you to tie into things like Ansible, Puppet, and Chef and sort of run your server fleets the same way you'd run your server fleets. That's it. That was the fundamental principle back in the early days and it's gone on from there to be open and blah, blah, blah. And um, they actually made it work. So not a lot of startups have fallen by the wayside over the period of time, but Cumulus managed to get that to stick and have been quite successful i think they were sort of reaching like five years of being a startup and i did have a sense that they might have been peaking in terms of growth and revenue than the sort of buzz as we see a lot of work and we'll talk more about open source network operating systems coming down you know further down in the show um, but the competitors are starting to appear over the years there has been a push to standardize on network operating systems and find a truly open one that everybody can converge on a bit like you know how linux became the open source operating system that everybody converged on there were others but we're starting to see some of those begin to emerge so i think it's good for cumulus to sell and become part of something else and of course nvidia bought melanox last week and then and melanox bought cumulus this week so there's <laughs> there's obviously a story there the, the whispers that i hear is that melanox had been negotiating with cumulus before nvidia popped up and it is also true that Mellanox and Cumulus have been doing very good business together for a number of years, especially in the high-performance compute space and the cloud provider space. So, yeah, I can confirm. I talked to uh, Josh Leslie, the CEO of Cumulus, and Kevin Deerling, who was an executive at Mellanox and is now with NVIDIA. And they said, yes, Mellanox and Cumulus had both been talking about an acquisition. And then NVIDIA showed up and said, we're buying Mellanox. And they said, mm -hmm. okay, we'll have to put this on the side until that's done. Mm -hmm. uh, but then Mellanox was, uh, I guess asking NVIDIA, we'd like to bring Cumulus along as well, and NVIDIA gave its blessing, and so it happened yeah. pretty quickly I think after it makes sense. the acquisition. Mm. Mellanox is the only networking company that actually owns the true end-to-end -end spectrum. So that is, not only does it make its own ASICs that go into its mm -hmm. own switches, it also makes the NICs, and it actually manufactures its own optics. 
So you can actually buy a solution in which every part of the of the Ethernet fabric is actually from Mellanox. And right. uh, they make the laser components and all this sort of stuff. They actually have bought a silicon photonics company four or five, four, four, three, four years ago. And so you can actually have a total. And you can't get that with Cisco because they quite often don't make their own NICs. They don't make their own optics, although they're starting to move into that a little bit. They're actually got the lasers, but they don't have the rest of the componentry. They don't make their own electronics. So I think that's interesting, and that's what is attracting NVIDIA to it. And the Mellanox or the MXOS, which Mellanox runs, is a bit, well, let's say it's average, <laughs> <laughs> I think would be the best way, the best summary. It certainly works. They've got a great footprint as a high-performance, uh, in the high-performance compute segment and in the financial markets with a high-speed switch. And that's something that Arista's been struggling with. And Arista did buy an FPGA L1 uh, networking company about a year ago, but I'm not sure that right. that gave them what they were looking for. That's a very niche market you know that's the the nanosecond forwarding whereas the mm. melanox is able to forward packets at something like 30 to 60 nanoseconds depending on which switch you're on which is way ahead of what anybody else is doing the broadcoms are much more up in the 200 nanosecond range so there's a really big market for melanox especially important to the high performance compute and i think cumulus gives them the operating system that they want for cloud companies and for high performance compute companies and i suspect that melanox will sunset the mxos bring Cumulus in as the standard operating system and, and roll it out. And also remember that Cumulus has an SDN strategy. It's a bit nascent, like NetQ is sort of iterating its way forward. We talked last week about right. NetQ3. So I think this makes very good sense. Yeah, there's a potential, I think, internally for conflict because one, Mellanox also supports other network operating systems, including Sonic, which is something we're going to talk about later on. Uh, and when you talk about cloud providers, Sonic seems to be the mm. NOS that that sector is sort of a... Uh, uh, standardizing around. So potential issues there with Cumulus. Uh, and then, of course, when uh, a company that makes its own hardware buys a software company, you have to wonder, are they going to continue to allow Cumulus to run on competing devices? And Josh Leslie, CEO of Cumulus, said, yes, you know, we're committed to Dell, we're committed to Broadcom, we're committed to running on other platforms. You know, And of course, you would expect them to say that it's sort of NVIDIA's decision long-term whether to allow Cumulus to, to run on other platforms and vice versa with Mellanox. So we'll see. Yeah, well, you don't want to throw away that business in the short term. Um, you say no, that not now. In the short term, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what does it look like in a year's time? I don't know. It's going to depend on what customers do and how much effort Nvidia slash Mellanox wants to put into working with multiple parties. In the past, Mellanox, I feel, hasn't done a great job of sort of getting out of its lane. It's always sort of been stuck in a and done pretty good business where it is. But Cumulus mm -hmm. has been very successful in getting wide into the enterprise as well as into the tier two, yes. tier three cloud providers and the people that sort of want it. Um, it's missing some features. You know, they're still working on scaling out to have the complete enterprise feature set. But it does mean that Cumulus in the campus might take a hit. That's probably over in the short term. It's hard to see how NVIDIA Mellanox would want to be attacking the enterprise with low cost uh, switches. And having, you know, the sort of features, the spanning tree and the MLAG and the, the EVPN and the campus, that's not to say they won't. It just means I think that would be a much longer, longer tail and not necessarily what NVIDIA wants, which is clearly to support its GPU clustering business in the enterprise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in talking to Mellanox, they were saying, yes, um, our Ethernet switches wouldn't run in a high performance compute environment, but we could be the management network that sits alongside that HPC environment that could also run Mellanox InfiniBand line. Yeah. I'm not so sure about that. 
Uh, I've seen <laughs> <laughs> that. That's what they say. I think they're still very keen to support yes, Infinity that's Band. That's the story. Yeah, yes. I've also spoken to HPC people who say we don't know why we build up buying Infinity Band. We should be just buying Ethernet. Um, and you know, keep in mind that Mellanox has got a really successful business in its SmartNIC, um, especially with cloud providers, because you can actually run the hypervisor in that SmartNIC. And that means when you buy bare metal servers, they actually the the NIC is the intelligence part, right? And the customer gets the server and it validates the BIOS and things like that. So there's a whole business there that NVIDIA can now tap into. It can start not just selling GPUs to the cloud providers who want to have GPU clusters or TPU clusters. It's now actually got the ability to build a like a, a rack scale architecture full of GPUs and networking and CPUs as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, but I think it's good for Cumulus because, as I said, I did wonder if it had lost its way a little and was losing its momentum. You know, we saw the first wave of uh, people like J.R. Rivers moving on to new, you know, greener, more exciting pastures, and that's usually a sign that the company's reaching a maturation phase. And it can go either way. It can, like, run out of energy and sort of die, or it can, you know, accelerate as somebody if the right person comes in and and funds it correctly and so forth so not yeah i think cumulus uh did a good job in advocating the the disaggregation story the benefits the potential uh opportunities of disaggregation um and melanox is now a nice home for them to land on i should also note that we talked about uh big switch being taken off the table as well so two uh independent software companies in the sdn space now gone that's right it's it's also one of the disappointing things is how slow white boxes come to enterprise IT or to the market generally. People still want to buy the branded products. They're very reluctant mm-hmm. to change and make the transition. And, you know, in 2000 and, uh, 2012, 2014 timeframe, when we first started talking about white box, I really felt that this was like something that would happen very quickly. And I've been really disappointed that the networking as the industry as a whole hasn't made more of a transition to put white box into at least some parts of their network. But, uh, you know, we're sort of like 10 years into the white box thing and, uh, you know, it's becoming clear that it's not going to be a dramatic change. It's going to be gradual and slow. Yeah, I think so. All right, we have links in the show notes if you want to read more about it, but let's move on. Uh, Enovium, which makes programmable switch ASICs, has announced a 25.6 terabit ASIC. This is the Teralynx 8. Enovium says the chip will begin sampling in the second half of 2020. Uh, this Teralynx 8 puts Enovium on par with Broadcom's Tomahawk 4, which was announced in December 2019, also 25.6 terabits. <laughs> 25. <laughs> 6 terabits a second. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty amazing uh, to me. So that you've got this chip that's, you know, was at 12.8 terabits per second, and the Teralynx 8 basically is the next generation of that. And that means that you're switching from the 25 gig uh, SIRDESs that were in the previous generation to a 50 gig SIRDES. So the I.O. channels clock out from 25 to 50 gigs. And so your your gearboxes all change. And obviously this chip is focused on the data center companies. Um, But one of the things that they're talking about is they claim that they're uh, the Teralynx 8 is the most significant chip, the most programmable, the most everything. And, you know, to some extent, I actually think that's true. I mean, 256 by 112 gig long reach SIRDESs. So you're actually talking, you know, um, 512, 56 gig SIRDES lanes that you can get out of there, which means you can have up to 256 ports of 10, 25, 50, and then um, 256, 100 gig E's coming out of that switch, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So, Mm-hmm. One switch with 100 gig E's, that's going to dramatically change the fan out. So if you're running a large data center, 
and you're looking at um, today you've probably got like a an ECMP with a, a hundred gig spine and then a hundred gig at the edge. You can now basically take what was previously eight switches and fold it into one. Two hundred fifty six mm-hmm. one gig ports is you know right, and it actually goes all the way up to sixty four four hundred gig ports coming out of that chip. Uh, mm. And the new generation chip is fully backwardly compatible with the existing Terralinks five and Terralinks seven. The Terralinks five is the top of rack; it's the low cost version optimized for for cutting the cost down a little bit. Terralink 7 is the current generation 12.5 and the Terralink 8. It's got most of the things you think about and now they're also claiming that they've got the our largest on-chip buffer of 170 megs. So if you're a believer in uh buffers, <laughs> I remain unconvinced that for the majority of people that this is necessary, but it still right. remains a thing. Uh, it is pretty big. It's a big big silicon chip. Yeah, and Anovium has been in an arms race with Barefoot Networks, their Tofino chip, which is also programmable. Uh, Barefoot was acquired by Intel back in 2019. Uh, Barefoot's Tofino 2 ASIC, that's their latest version, is at 12.8 terabits per second. So Anovium has stolen a march here. Yeah, I think they all must be using roughly the same technology. My guess would be, and this is a straight-up guess, is that some of the technology that goes on inside of the chip must be... Um, able to be bought or licensed and they're all copying that part of it maybe the surdes mm. parts of it or something like that mm-hmm. and they're working on some parts of that now that would be guess and hopefully i'm not incorrect but it is also interesting that they're also pitching the terralinks 8 and saying that this version of the uh, asic which is a seven nanometer process will go to 51.2 terabits per second so there's another generation already in the pipeline wow. it's coming 51.2 terabits per second, so double again. There is no shortage of bandwidth in the data center. So <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. You know, you're talking about at 51.2 terabits per second, I think you're talking 32 by 800 gig ports. That's my uh. is my sense. So that's just rather extraordinary in the sense of, you know, what you could do with one switch or one pair of switches in a data center is probably enough to power, you know, a thousand servers sort of thing, or, you know, hundreds of servers certainly running at you know, 25 gig or 50 gig, something like that. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, and at the same time, we're seeing the Ethernet protocol. It's now at 400 gig, and there are plans on the drawing board for 800 gig. So yeah, got the hardware stepping up. Yeah, well. they're already talking about the, the technology for 800 gig is here. Um, there are manufacturers like Infi who are having the 800 gig optical silicon ready to go for small pilots. There's no standards for it, of course, but it is coming. And another thing that they wanted to point out was that because we're clock rating the Surdes is up, to the higher speeds this uses less power it uses less power because you need less optics and it uses less power because the surdes has become much narrower they just you don't have to have so many of them so mm-hmm. yeah is quite i just think this is extraordinary now novium is having a lot of success shipping the their asics with cisco they were trying to make the point that Cisco's uh, standing back from the Broadcom. They're really focusing on the Anovium Terralinks and its own chips, the cloud scales in the data center uh, going forward, and you'll probably see less Broadcom in the product lines over time, um, if not already. So I have no way to validate that. I haven't seen anything or read anything to suggest that. So Anovium is looking pretty good, you know, came out just a few years ago and they're keeping up with the big boys which is quite an achievement so well done to them i think and we'll keep an eye on that as it develops uh, moving on 
Arista Networks has announced that it will support the Sonic open source network OS on Arista switches. Sonic was originally developed by Microsoft and then released as an open source project, uh, and Microsoft Azure is the primary driver and consumer of Sonic to date. And Sonic just keeps going, getting legs over and over and over. We keep hearing more and more about Sonic. Mellanox has been very vocal in its support. Inovium, I didn't talk about it in that section, but they were very vocal about its support for SAI and the Sonic operating system and that they hoped that they could see more around that. And uh, I think it's just fascinating that this is probably going to be, and I think I made this prediction about six months ago, that um, Sonic is likely to be the de facto open source NOS. That is, you can go and download a an open source NOS and it'll be a bit like Linux was, you know, in the mid 2000s to be a bit rough and a bit, but it's there. And if you know how to make it go, you can make it go. And I think the fact that Arista is saying, yeah, we'll support it is the suggestion that customers want it. They're demanding it. And the fact that they're making a pitch about this is actually in response to what customers ask for. Well, we can tie this sort of to Arista's financial results, which we'll be talking about later in the show, but plurality of their business comes from the, quote, cloud titans, uh, and it's the cloud titans who are the primary consumers of Sonic, so it makes sense that Arista would follow where their customers are going. Yeah, and we'll talk more about, you know, the breakdown of the financial results in the later section about Arista, but you're quite right, you know, a lot of their revenue, but a lot of their revenue comes from not the tier one providers, but the tier two and tier three, and that is where Sonic would be very, very helpful if you're not paying you don't want to be paying $10,000 a software license per switch, you know, right. <laughs> or yes. 20000 a year for a switch when you could go out and get an open source operating system and do it for free. That really does change the, the mathematics on your data center scaling. And, you know, it's really important when you're building clouds that as you scale out, you don't keep your costs don't increase because you must um, you must not have your cost scale as you go out because you need to just spend that money on hardware, not on software. So it's cheaper yes. to do the development in-house than it is to keep paying a third party for what is fundamentally a pretty straightforward device in their networks. It doesn't, not for enterprise IT, but in cloud, it's usually a very straightforward thing. Uh, most switches in the in the cloud, in the, especially in the core data center network, just route IP. They don't do anything else. They don't often don't quas, they often don't buffer, they often don't do very much at all. So they don't need the sort of, you know, kitchen sink and a pair of shoes and sandals and a and a how's your father for Friday night all chucked into the operating <laughs> system. They got it they just want to cut it right back down to like a drag racing thing and and run what they need. That's exactly right. It's not full of all the enterprise features that you would normally expect in a switch OS. It's very stripped down. Hmm. Um one thing to note here is that um Arista has developed its own switch abstraction interface, or SI, uh, which it's running on this box. So it's, uh, you know, an open source version of Sonic, but Arista is putting its own SI on this, um, as opposed to the uh, Open Compute Project SI, which Microsoft also developed and then released open uh, to interface with the network OS and the underlying ASIC. Arista is saying it's doing this because its own SI, they say, can provide better performance, support and troubleshooting. They can roll out bug fixes faster and and work with customers more quickly to address problems. Uh, So Arista keeping a little bit of its own hook in there well i guess it would have to do something special to justify paying charging people for it like that would be one thing in the back of my mind a question to ask them if you were into the sales process and there is also a case to be made is that quite often the sci runs code from uh other people's assets so it comes as a binary blob from uh broadcom or novium and then it just gets thumped into the sci and that's the proprietary Mm -hmm. part and that's why a lot of these systems aren't genuinely open and uh, there has been various criticisms from people who do this you know who use this code to say that doesn't work very well or certain features don't work very well so we just don't use those features um 
I, again, it comes down to do you want these features? Are they relevant to you? Are they not? Right. But, you know, Arista has always maintained that writing its own drivers for the ASICs that it uses all the way back since the very early days is part of its stability and reliability and part of what makes it special. So, uh, Yeah, they're very much saying it's part of the overall value proposition that they can get the most out of the hardware with their own abstraction layer. Yeah, so you choose which side of the argument you want. Do you want the free stuff <laughs> right. that comes with the, yeah? Or do you want, Arista says it's got doing it better and you should pay for it, you should pay us for getting those drivers optimized and making sure they're bug free because it is true to some extent that companies like Broadcom have very limited motivation to make their software software actually stable and reliable they just want to sell the chip <laughs> yes that was arista's other point that if you have an issue with the open compute side you sort of just have to go to the community and hope it gets fixed as opposed to calling up arista and saying hey write some uh, write some bug fixes for us so yeah you can see both sides of the argument yeah and you know maybe in the early days of sonic that's an argument that could be be won it could be yeah perhaps particularly for the tier twos who may not have the same kind of resources as the cloud titans. I love that term, cloud titans. <laughs> cloud titans. Titans. <laughs> uh, one other note here. Uh, Arista says customers can also run components of Arista's containerized version of EOS. For instance, if you happen to prefer Arista's BGP stack to what you'll get in Sonic, which is typically uh, an open source element, then you can do that. You can run the uh, containerized elements from EOS alongside Sonic. Oh, Nice. Yep. Again, putting their little hook in there if you want it. Yeah, that's it. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor today, Service Express. Don't let the OEM swipe your IT budget. If buying new data center hardware isn't an option, consider third-party maintenance from Service Express. You can lower your support costs, extend the life of your equipment, and save your IT budget. So refresh your service, not your hardware. Service Express offers penalty-free coverage adjustments, short-term gap coverage, 30-minute engineer callback, and dedicated local primary and secondary engineers. Service Express has a first First trip repair success rate of 97%. Find out more at serviceexpress.com slash packet pushers. And while you're there, you can learn how to win a $50 Amazon gift card. That's serviceexpress.com slash packet pushers. We thank Service Express for being a sponsor. All right, back to the news. In what's becoming a regular feature, we've got some space networking. Uh, today's is a story about how the International Space Station has set up a 100 megabit per second network to a ground receiver using lasers. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I just love space lasers. And I, in fact, <laughs> I'm, I, I must say I've got a bit of a weak spot for all things space networking. As a, as I, I can think tell. Just, um, and I keep putting things in because I'd want to sort of keep the story going and keep people updated. So the obvious thing here is that the ISS or the International Space Station now has a 100 megabit per second Ethernet space laser connection. Now, this is ground-to-orbit using Sony technology, and it, normally the ground-to-orbit is much uh, slower. It's normally radio waves and can't be very high speed because of the attenuation, and as the ISS moves, it got to keep refocusing, all this sort of stuff. So it's pretty interesting that they've now managed to use a space laser to do this using some Sony technology. Links are in the show notes if you want to find out how they're using this. It's called the Small Optical Link for the International Space Station or SOLIS. It's quite an interesting read to sort of think about how it is. And the second thing I wanted to talk about was previously we talked about Starlink uh, using lasers or free space optics, as it's sometimes called, between satellites to form a mesh network. And a Twitter thread that I was tracking this week uh, from some people who are really into the space stuff suggests that um, in some recent submissions to the FCC, Starlink has made it clear that this isn't happening because of the where they're now moving their satellites into low Earth orbit 
and at the angle that they're placing them relative to the Earth, the space lasers can't actually do the coverage. And the suggestion is that although the initial um, submissions to the FCC saying we're going to use lasers to synchronize them together, that's not happening now, probably because <laughs> the power or the engine or the motors that they needed to do it couldn't be made. Um, the reason I raise this is because the Starlink configuration or the Starlink designs have changed radically over the last six months. Originally, they were talking about, you know, building a, a full mesh network and some satellites in a MEO orbit and some in an LEO orbit, and there'd be like an ECMP thing in space and the signal would... And now they're talking about putting ground <laughs> stations everywhere and going up, down, up, down, up, down. Mm. Um, so I'm sort of in the point now where anything that Starlink says is like, hmm, we're going to have to wait and see. <laughs> Let's, yes, of course. Let's see what ships. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. As with any Elon Musk company, wait and see is the rest the best strategy. Yeah, yeah. It does seem like they made some fairly ambitious goals. They weren't able to deliver on them. There's some suggestions that the first bunch of satellites that they actually sent to space actually have no communication ability whatsoever. And apparently somewhere between 10 and 20% of them have already deorbited. So they they didn't actually work too well at all. And they may be up there, but there's no actual um, evidence that they're actually communicating or passing data at this point in time. So they may have just been a dummy launch to prove out the uh, placement and the moving and, you know, mm -hmm. and... Keep in mind here that uh, Starlink has a lot of obligations to the FCC to show progress. So it has licenses and it makes commitments and it has to deliver on them to some greater or lesser extent. So what you right. might actually be seeing here is sort of like a, a project manager saying, okay, we're not going to get that done on time. What can we take out so at least we make it look like we do? <laughs> at least get something up there. Get something, you know, how are we going to get invoice? How are we going to get the invoice out the door? Or, you know, like the, you know, so there's... I, Somewhere in here is there's truth. So um, my previous excitement around Starlink is starting to wane because I think the reality of this is quite different. Anyway, links in the show notes if you want to dive into that. All right, moving on. Video conferencing juggernaut Zoom has acquired Keybase to enhance the company's encryption capabilities. Keybase makes encrypted messaging and chat apps. Sort of. Keybase was a really odd company. Um, basically, it was like a bunch of crypto people, um, and it was a company looking for a market. And it wandered around doing a bunch of things, and it had uh, you were able to publicly identify yourself and then issue a public key that anybody could find you. It was kind of like a crypto directory for a while. It was very okay. popular mm -hmm. for people to come up and claim their Keybase I.O., thing and away it went and then at some point they turned around and did a blockchain or literally a cryptocurrency oh, dear. <laughs> and sort of like back it right at the time when cryptocurrency was really scammy a lot of these initial coin offerings were <laughs> <outright> <laughs> has it has it has it evolved from initially scammy i'm not sure <laughs> well i'm not 100 sure what they do and i don't actually understand what their business model is i have one because everybody seemed to play around with it but i don't actually didn't get too deep into what the product actually did because i could never see a use for it but the idea Correct. was is that you would have end-to-end -end encryption between two points and they've actually got a crypto infrastructure so that you can do a secure message against your file sharing. Zoom gets that whole thing. So what they get is a very, very fast way of getting a viable aqua hire of people who know cryptography, people yes. who have proven to be a secure-ish end-to-end encryption process, and they get a whole bunch of infrastructure, like a global-class infrastructure with a lot of people connected to it to be able to secure their video conferencing. I think it's a really smart move on the face of it because all of the people who are whining at them about end-to-end -end encryption, and Zoom's probably going like, well, it's probably going to take us six months to build it and another six months to validate it, and let's just buy... Right. Keybase. So now we wait to see if the security tards on Twitter start to realize that they've been well and truly beaten and that they were wrong, you know, <laughs> because they're really doing the right things. 
Yeah, Zoom, uh, while it has been experiencing, uh, frankly, incredible growth due to the pandemic, it's also come under fire for security issues. And frankly, Zoom's not always accurate positioning on its encryption and privacy capabilities. Uh, so Zoom says it's going to offer end-to-end encryption option that does not store encryption keys on Zoom servers. Keys will be under the control of the host. However, this option will not support features like phone bridges, cloud recording, or non-Zoom conference systems. So there will be some trade-offs for that end-to-end encryption. Yeah, I mean, uh, people who were criticizing Zoom, um, what became clear almost the day after the criticism was sort of proven valid was that they were doing something about it, like the commitment from the CEO to immediately stop all product development and focus exclusively on security. And then he went out and bought a whole bunch of really good people like Alex Stamos and others to um, to do this. And he's literally just said, look, the fastest way to get from here to here is to go and buy that company. He's gone, okay, mm. go and buy it. Right? That yeah. is... That is a commitment to solving this problem. That is not, you know, uh, dodging the issue or saying we'll fix it in the next iteration or, you know, in six months we'll have a new version out that'll solve that. that there's no mealy mouth here. This is activity. So I'm, just, you know, and a lot of the problems that people were having with Zoom are largely problems of people not taking the time to learn their own tool set. Just yes. boggles the mind that people don't actually ever take the time to understand their tools. It's like if you gave them a screwdriver, do I have to sit there and teach you for three days how to use a screwdriver? Because that's literally what it would be. So Yes, on the internet, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. So soon it'll be end-to-end encryption, and then uh, shortly after that I imagine they'll be able to give you encryption keys that only enterprises own. So if you want to have an enterprise solution like, and this is a feature that other solutions like WebEx have where you can actually own your crypto keys so that you can break into the sessions yourself if you need to. Um, mm-hmm. And that pretty quickly puts Zoom on a par with the other video conferencing solutions that are out there. And uh, I imagine if I was, you know, WebEx or BlueJeans or one of these other ones, I'd be pretty boggled by the fact that Zoom is probably going to displace them from the market almost completely within a very short period of time. Could be. Uh, you know, if I was WebEx, I'd be pretty annoyed right about now that, <laughs> oh, you <yeah>. know, <laughs> this no-name startup is whopping our butts sort of thing. So. Yes, handily. And yeah. Having well, experienced works. both p- platforms, exactly, yeah. exactly. I had it to works. use WebEx again this works. week and it was not great. It wouldn't switch. It wouldn't switch cameras. The audio was pretty. Yeah. So you know, it wasn't as awful as it used to be. So there's that. It's definitely making progress, but not. Yeah. A little competition's good for everybody. I think so. All right, our next story, a new lobbying group of tech companies has launched the Open RAN Policy Coalition to influence the direction of 5G development. The group's goals are to, quote, promote policies that will advance the adoption of open and interoperable solutions in the radio access network. Members include AT&T, Verizon, Cisco, NTT, Qualcomm, Samsung, Vodafone, and other brand name tech companies that are not Huawei. Yeah, and the article that we used as source for this on the register sort of hinted that this was a U.S. coalition. And actually it is. It does appear, but it's not a U.S. government coalition. It's actually a group of U.S. uh, technology companies banding together to try and work out how they can produce a technology without having to develop themselves. So the thing here is that all of these companies that we're talking about, Cisco, Fujitsu, Google, IBM, Intel, Juniper, could decide to go and build 5G RAN products, but didn't, right? So over the the last 20 years, companies like Huawei and ZTE have spent – billions, literally billions, doing the research and development and the testing and then submitting patents for a lot of the IP. And the articles that I've read suggest that they own perhaps as much as half or more, up to 70% of patents around the 5G radio access network. And Huawei's done an enormous job of being in the standards bodies and putting its technology forward for adoption. And because nobody else has put it in there, 
they win. And you could say that the US companies decided that doing the radio access network wasn't something they wanted to spend on. So they took their cash, put it in the bank, kept it offshore while they waited for a new US government to come in that would give them a, a tax holiday instead of investing it in a new technology. And now they're in a situation where the US government is making a market for them by protecting the US telco market and saying, no Huawei, no ZTE, and they don't really want to see the business go to Nokia and Ericsson. So now they're pushing for an open RAN so that the American companies can get into the pot of money. It's, it's a very dodgy sort of setup in a way. Yeah, this open RAN organization, I want to make clear, it's not about technology standards. It's not about building, uh, developing software for uh, the radio access network. It's not about advancing open hardware. It is a policy and lobbying organization. Mm -hmm. Their objective is to lobby the U.S. federal government to give them research and develop, to give companies research and development money and to essentially protect a market for these uh, organizations belonging to this group. So this is a, a political group, not a technology group. Yeah, and these are not companies. Like, the, the organization wants to... Um, promote inter testing open and interoperable networks and solutions and incentivizing supply chain diversity. These are not companies who like supply chain diversity or interoperability, <laughs> right? <laughs> the hypocrisy is rather extraordinary. Now, so the key here is that any of these companies could have invested in this technology 10 years ago, but chose not to. And Huawei has, and Keep in mind that even if they bring a product to market, the only market they can sell it in is the US market because the Europeans are overwhelmingly choosing Huawei, Nokia, Ericsson. And in countries like India and Africa and China and Brazil, you know, those types, South America, they're turning to a Huawei because it, the Huawei technology works and it's substantially cheaper than anything mm -hmm. that the US companies can bring to market. So if any of these companies were actually to build a 5G RAN technology, they would almost, they would, the general assumption would be that they're not able to compete globally and they'd be limited to the US market as a protected asset, which is fine. The US government can choose to do that if it wants, but it can't compete in the open market. So you don't want to be building a proprietary product because you've got nothing to win, right? Right. Right. <laughs> because you'll only ever have the, the site, the market. Now, the US would certainly be the largest market, but unless you've got a global market, is is it financially worthwhile? You know, do you do you spend the the 500 million and three years to bring a product to market and go into a 10 to 20 year cycle of de uh, developing it. Well, obviously all of these US companies decided no, we don't want to. So, right. Hmm. They're just going to lobby for protectionism here in North America, I think. Yeah, which is, you know, <laughs> nice work if you can get it, you know, like that. <laughs> but it's interesting it's, that it's probably easier to lobby politicians than it is to build a competing RAND product. I, yeah, I would like to yeah. say that. But it's very interesting that they're using open source or open technology stacks to um, actually build a solution that they can all participate in. So they're willing now to take a small part of a shared market instead of trying to compete to become a dominant player in the market. So, Well, I should say, I mean, I think to that end, if the uh, if a, a competing open project uh, actually gets built, you'll notice that Nokia and Ericsson are not members of this organization because it's not in their interest to build an open no. system where you can swap in different hardware and software components. They want a closed proprietary system because that's how they make their money. And that would be reasonable speculation. But the flip side here, of course, is Huawei owns the IP, as I said earlier. Huawei owns something like 50 to 70% of the patents. So where, who's going to pay for those patents in this open RAN? Because right. they have to use them. Like the 5G standards are all, you know, you have to pay uh, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory licensing fees. So these guys would all have to chip into a pot and still pay for those licensing fees, or the US government has to declare those patents invalid and it's refusing to pay for them. And that's going to open mm. up a whole bag of worms. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. So 
interesting time. Oh, that would be such a bad move. Yeah, very interesting time. So, <laughs> anyway, this, as usual, good. Yeah, this, uh, this, this, just to give you another sense of this, there's also a complementary activity going on in the telecom infrastructure project called Wireless Backhaul. And there's a link in the show notes here. And it, uh, it got lit up this week. And it is the wireless backhaul, which is from the 5G base station back to the core network. So where you have your 5G RAN comes down to the 5G base station. How do you connect it back? And a lot of these 5G base stations today, like your 4G and your 3G, only have like 10 megs or 100 meg connections. So this open wireless thing is really, really interesting. They're talking about a disaggregated white box solution called Open Soft Hall, which allows you to point your microwaves from your base station back to your core networks at a reasonably cost-effective price. So super interesting to see this come together. And they are specifically stating that they want to achieve financial transparency and avoid unreasonable licensing practices for this backhaul network to accelerate innovation and to have a bigger pool of potential suppliers and avoid vendor lock-in. Now, that is not normally something we talk about in telco. So uh, the Telecom Infrastructure Project continues to shake up the world here, and uh, it's, a, it's a blessed thing, I must say. Yeah, and just to be clear, Telecom Infrastructure Project is actually a technology standards body uh, or, or a technology standards organization developing open standards as opposed to the Open RAN Policy Coalition we just talked about. Those yeah. are two different entities. One's a doer and one's a talker. <laughs> <laughs> one's a lobbying firm yeah, and nice. one is actually getting on with it. <laughs> For sure. All right, moving on, we've got some financial news. Uh, Arista Networks reported its Q1 financial results. The company posted revenues of $523 million, which is down 12% year-over-year, and net income of $138 million, also down year-over-year. Arista says it's dealing with supply chain constraints and shortages in inventory and some components, and lead times have doubled for some of its popular platforms in part due to the pandemic. Yeah, gross margin is up. They managed to increase their profit margin, but sales are down. Uh, as you hinted, it's a, there was an accounting thing. They took some charges a while back and had to re-account for them now and supply chain constraints obviously related to COVID-19 in China the production was down um, I, there was a really interesting part for me that I noticed which was they actually spelt out how much uh, of their revenue comes from different market segments and they said yes that's right mm-hmm. yeah so we are now providing <laughs> and, and it was a bit bit snarky it said due to popular requests <laughs> from our analyst friends <laughs> so, uh, blah 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 we're now providing more color in our annual trends across three main sectors cloud titans is approximately 40 percent of our mix enterprise including financial services is approximately 35 percent and providers including both service provider and cloud specialty provider is 25 percent so I, the, I i'm a little surprised here i thought the cloud titans were bigger and enterprise was smaller but it's clear yes. that arista has you know 35 percent of the market is enterprise it's, and that makes sense as the cloud titans increasingly turn away from from proprietary stuff like AWS particularly. I mean, honestly, I feel like that's a, a healthy balance for Arista because, you know, more than 40% exposure to, what, three to five customers would be really bad for Arista. <laughs> it would, yeah. So that was one thing. And then the other one was... Uh, uh, the Q1 2020 revenue had an international contribution at 23%. So 23% came from outside of America. So 77% of their revenue comes from inside America. That must Mm -hmm. be a worry for them because they're not uh, diverse, geographically diverse revenue streams. So they really haven't gotten outside of the US at this point. And that must be a point of growth for them, I suspect, to try and break into other markets, especially Europe. Yeah. 
Uh, and one note that, that jumped out at me, we've been talking about Arista and their new direction toward the campus. You know, they acquired a, a wireless LAN company. They've released switches for the campus network. Um, we've been wondering how that's going. Uh, a financial analyst on the earnings call asked Jayshree Ural about it. She said, quote, I think where we would be challenged in the enterprise and also in the campus is new prospects. We're not going to get enough face time with them, meaning because of COVID-19, they're having a hard time convincing folks to bring Arista into the campus as opposed to just the data center. Mm -hmm. uh, she also said, quote, nobody is in the building to upgrade their campus either. Obviously, that's a true statement, and I think that's also going to have impacts for other traditional network vendors who are looking at the enterprise campus as a, a significant revenue source. Yeah, so this is, a, I did a survey this week uh, on Twitter, a bit of an ad hoc poll, um, asking people if they're changing their campus plans. 50% said no change. 35% of people said that they're delaying their campus projects, and 15% said they're cancelled. My mm. point would be is that the majority of people are switching away from campus to focus on remote access or distributed working, and it'll be VDI, VPNs, remote VPNs, be either putting virtual desktops in the cloud or building in-house virtual desktops, you know, and putting security on them. I think all campus projects are basically like, eh, done. <laughs> let's get the remote working. Let's get the teleconferencing out. You know, let's solve all of those problems. And right. And at the same time, we've seen the, the big vendors like Cisco rolling out like something like SD Access, which is a campus fabric solution, and Juniper buying Mist yeah. uh, to get into the campus. Particularly, we see folks pinning a lot of their hopes around Wi-Fi 6 upgrades. That's probably not going to happen. Like, for instance, Facebook just announced it's going to allow employees to work from home through the end of the year. So if folks yeah. are looking to, you know, why would you upgrade your campus network when you don't have anybody in the office? Exactly. I think it'll take a massive hit. Uh, that whole enterprise campus wide wireless will be... It's not going to die, but it's going to shrink substantially. You know, 20%, 40% is certainly possible. And that does leave a lot of these companies with plans who, who were planning to attack the campus looking, going like, we need to be an SD-WAN. So my guess would be is that Arista will be an SD-WAN within three to six months. Because it has oh, to. That's interesting. It has to. Right? <laughs> has no choice. Yes. Yeah. Well, that ties in very nicely to our next conversation, which is on Fortinet, which also announced their results for the first quarter of 2020. Revenues were $576.9 million, up 22% year over year, and net income was $104 million, nearly double this quarter last year. Now, the company anticipates similar revenue performance over the next quarter, and CEO Ken G said in a statement, our proprietary 40 ASIC security processing unit can deliver 10 times the VPN throughput capacity of comparable competitors. The significant competitive advantage is one reason we believe we will continue to gain market share during a period of tougher economic conditions. In other words, remote access is driving our fortunes. <laughs> and he's not wrong either. I did have a quick no, look he's at not. The, <laughs> I did not. I mean, and they're running nearly an 80% gross margin on that business. So mm. their share price shot up from 100 bucks to uh, 135 bucks on those results, um, to, as you might imagine. So really like blew the quarter off. And as they say, for those people who do have remote access VPN and can get the bandwidth into their, their data centers or in their colos, the 40Net hardware accelerated solution is really um, much further ahead uh, than you might think. And they are very well positioned. Uh, they've also got the ability to deploy their VPNs into Azure and AWS. They've published white papers on how to do that. So mm -hmm. if you want to find out more about that, we actually did a podcast with them a while back. So do a search for 40Net on the Packer Pusher site and you'll be able to get some more information. But yeah, 40Net's in a really good position showing that security and remote access or distribu supporting distributed computing is where the money is now. And yes, for the next few quarters, certainly. Yeah. And we would, we uh, would 
you and I would agree that for the next few quarters, yes, that's also where it's going to be. I would yeah. I would go further and say this is a, you know, this is a substantial trend. Twenty to thirty percent of all people will just stop working uh, on site. They will instead of being in the office four days a week and working from home one, it'll be working from home four days a week, going to the office one, mm. and that'll that'll mm. be a I transition that that'll play out over the next two or three years. Uh, and the company also cited its move into adjacent market areas, particularly SD-WAN, as a factor in its strong results, which I think ties back to your comment about Arista maybe needing to get into SD-WAN over the next few quarters. Yeah, Arista wouldn't have wanted to do this, but I suspect they'll buy someone. We could speculate about it, but I think we have to go. I think we do have to go. We've spent enough time talking. Uh, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our Megaport Tech Bytes conversation on supporting your remote workers. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from Packet Pushers. Today's sponsor is Megaport, which provides global cloud connectivity, data center, interconnect, and internet exchange peering. Our guest is Misha Citrone. He is the Senior Global Director, Cloud Solutions. We're going to talk about the services Megaport offers and how the company can support your remote network needs. Misha, welcome to the podcast. Can you give us a quick description of Megaport and what the company does? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great to be a part of this series. So we run a private global network that gives a business full control to deploy on-demand layer 2 private connections with no contracts. And we do this between different data centers and to major destinations such as public cloud providers across our entire network. So whether you're moving data between sites or you're leveraging hybrid and multi-cloud connectivity, we enable you to be able to have the access to extend your network to access any of these destinations all from our web portal. All private... So effectively, you've got this network that you've built out, you've got pops all over the world, and if I'm in a mainly a colo facility, I can just instantly configure and be connected to your backbone and then dynamically configure connectivity between data centers or other sites. Exactly. So you're really, your only real lead time is just physically connecting to us in the building, and then from there, you can fan out and spin up VLAN tags and manage those. Right. On- and given that most of us are in colo facilities these days, quite often you're there and it's just a bang, we're done sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Can you give us a sense of how many pops you have and what your geographical footprint's like? Yeah, so today we're enabled in over 600 data centers across 21 countries. So we're fully data center agnostic, and that means network equipment lives close to over 100 unique operators. And that's just giving you access to a variety of colo sites and cloud on-ramps so you can directly connect to. Okay, that's great. So obviously you do a lot of connectivity, but the pandemic we're experiencing now is driving a spike in demand for remote work. Do you uh, have any solution around remote access for VDI or desktop as a service? Yeah, it's it's funny because it's such a super interesting time, you know, just how much of an influx of remote users, you know, that have to keep up with the business running, right? And enterprise IT teams having to figure out how to scale this, provide security, compliance, and then grant and deliver access back to their corporate network. So using Megaport, and the public cloud providers that can spin up desktop as a service and VDI environments, it becomes a big part of the solution. You can actually privately connect to your public cloud VDI environments back into your corporate data center, leveraging Megaport. And that's going to give you that security and that authentication that you require. And you can do that at scale. And we're talking about a matter of hours to days here, not weeks or months, if you can meet us at a common data center. Okay, and that speed is critical because so many companies are sort of struggling to get their remote workforce engaged and updated. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the interesting part here is, you know, we've seen people scale from hundreds of users on their remote access to 10,000 users in the space of a month or so. You've got this private network. So what you're saying is you can get more bandwidth into their co-location facility, say, from the internet, or you're also in a position to be able to say, what, do private networking between data centers? Because now you've got a spike, you might need to um, boost the bandwidth on your DCI type stuff. 
Yeah. So think about if, if, a, if an organization has a connectivity to us or they connect to us in a common data center, they then have the hooks to get into all these major public clouds that can provide that scale to build out desktop environments. And so they can actually physically and privately connect from our network into these major public clouds. And so what hmm. we're seeing is they can minimize our contention, how customers access their corporate network. They can actually minimize the contention to their existing VPN. And then they have the scale of the public cloud that can actually turn up all these virtual Windows desktops, for example, okay, and right, bring right, them back yeah. down into their corporate network through Megaport. All right. So if I'm using one of the public cloud providers to give me a thin client, I still need bandwidth from the public cloud into my data center where my traditional app or my heritage app might well be located. Yep. And that's where we come in. So we're actually connecting that. We're, we're interconnecting that on your behalf and doing it on demand with no contracts. So that way, think about the times that we're in, de- depending on how long you need this, which is kind of an interesting time where it's the unknown, mm-hmm. you can scale this and leave this up. So you're not really factoring this from a CapEx standpoint. It's more OPEX. You're, you're doing this and sustaining it as you need to and being more agile. Right. And so the, the other final part about this is, just to be clear here, is that if I was getting an internet feed from you, I would also be able to scale that up to the line rate of my access link. So if I had a 10, 10 gig link up to the to the Megaport pop, maybe I was only taking one gig today, I could scale it to two, three, four, five as needed. Yeah. So thinking about if you have connectivity to us, you can actually fan out um, from one meg all the way up to 10 gig and you can mm-hmm. do multiple virtual connections over your physical port. So if you physically connect to us at a data center, you can fan out and connects to all kinds of major destinations. It doesn't matter the public cloud provider. That's up to you based off of your workloads. Right. So it could be internet. It could be direct connect off to a public cloud. It could be into your MPLS, whatever it is. Yeah. So so we predominantly focus on private connectivity, meaning uh, we do have an internet exchange, but it's not so much focused on internet. We don't have transit involvement, meaning you can participate on the IX, but it's, it's, really, it's really for hybrid and multi-cloud yeah. Um, and networking yeah. between your data centers, all private, no internet ISPs are involved. So can you give us a customer example of uh, somebody who's come to you for either VDI or desktop as a service? Yeah. So so one that comes to mind, we've supported over the past few weeks, uh, we worked with a publicly traded gaming company. They've got over 10,000 employees and they were looking for the ability to scale Windows virtual desktops and do this for their remote users using Azure Cloud and privately connect their employees back to their corporate apps running on Active Directory for their identity store inside the data center. So one of their asks was, how can I quickly do this? Of course, <laughs> they needed it like yesterday. <laughs> and their problem was they didn't have any public IPs. And you got to have those to allow the Azure AD domain services to talk back to their Active Directory on-prem. Because what you're doing is you're going from a public-facing hosted environment over Microsoft peering in Azure Cloud to private IP space with your Active Directory in your corporate network, in your data center. So you got to think about public pairing and then NAT becomes involved. So using a physical megaport, we were able to deploy virtual cross-connects, these are VLAN tags, to Azure Express Route, all private, to set up their peering into their VNet workloads, booting up Windows virtual desktops. And then they deployed a megaport cloud router that's a layer three appliance on top and connected it to their physical megaport, which allocated public IPs on their behalf. And yeah, I did say that. So meaning... For a business that doesn't have a public ASN or public IPs available, they can actually leverage and spin up an MCR, Megaport Cloud Router, and we generate those IPs for you and you can use our ASN. Um, so it's super interesting. And you know we've, we've already done the development and the integration with major cloud providers. So this was automated for the customer in the portal 
and these IPs are generated for them. So you don't got to go source hardware. You don't need to deal with licensing and managing a box or even a purchase order. You just get full control to spin up a layer three router that'll support BGP, NAT, um, failover on demand. And that's pretty powerful for this use case. So, you know, these private connections back into the public cloud for Azure help them retain no contention with their customer facing apps while they were serving all this from their data center. So great use case for us. And we were just really happy to help. What I think the thing I like most about this is that this is um, fixing the gap between I've got a pipe that takes me between two places. And sometimes what I need is a bit of routing there to glue it together. So I get that final bit of connectivity. And sometimes it's a BGP, as you say, you need a private PI routed space to make it work or you need something. So you've actually created this little virtual instance um, this virtual routing instance you, you can deploy from your own console that actually sounds like it just covers up that little, that last mile. So it's actually a useful service instead of a, oh, I've got halfway there. Now I need to do the other half. Well, essentially it really is. It's, it's, it's routing as a service. So, you know, if, if you're a hybrid IT, playing a hybrid IT hat or you're the network engineer and you're figuring out, ah, I got to deal with, you know, um, layer three connectivity, you know, you don't have to source hardware. Right? You don't have to deal with licensing mm-hmm. or if it's got a shelf life and EOL on it. And you're not on the hook on terms. So you literally have this appliance you can spin up. And we're privately hosting these virtual instances on our network for you. Um, yeah. And you can use them with or without ports. And with this use case, the customer was able to not have to re-architect anything. And they were able to not only physically connect and deal with VLANs, but then have this layer 3 appliance that did all the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. managing public IPs. Yeah, because it's only doing a very narrow set of functions. A little bit of BGP, a little bit of IP routing, you know, but the most important part is the integration with your control plane where you deploy it, configure it, and do the things you need to do. You don't really need to go and buy, you know, a brand name router, which has got like 4,000 functions in it, just to do the three things you need to do to terminate this connectivity. Well, yeah, and that's the key here is that being able to go into a portal and spin this up in real time and be able to have full control over it, use it for as little as long as you want. It's pretty mm-hmm. powerful, especially in the current state that we're in. And a lot of businesses that we work with may not have available public IPs. And yeah. because we're orchestrating yeah. that and automating that, it's literally click through from them. So they're not thinking about what's my lead time here. They literally can do this same day within, within minutes. And what about security? Do you offer also offer more security controls? Well, what's interesting is is that our platform is this ubiquitous layer two environment. So everything on our platform is private. It doesn't touch the public internet. So you absolutely can encrypt on top of this. And depending on what security and authentication that you're using, you, you absolutely can apply that. The great thing about desktops as a service and BDI in general with the public cloud is it still aligns to accessing everything that you need in your corporate network, meaning you still have full control over your cloud environment. So... Um, you know, you can retain user control over your network with your virtual private clouds. We're talking about security groups, network ACLs, routing tables. You still have that in the cloud coming back down. And then when it, as it relates to Active Directory, or identity and access management, you still have that. You can apply multi-factor authentication, conditional access, you name it. That's happening in the public cloud. Then you get to ride our private network back into your corporate network, which is all layer two. So you really do have that full security and that control and can meet that compliance for all these VDI environments. All right. So I'm guessing that uh, most organizations are giving their business continuity plans a very hard look. Are there lessons from the pandemic or takeaways that we should be carrying forward into future planning? You know, well, I, th- I think, you know, this experiment, <laughs> if we can all call it that, right? You know, we're, <laughs> experiment is a good word. <laughs> you know what I mean? A real world, world experiment, world. perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So, you know, we're obviously all going through it. I think, I think, well, we'll be stepping back and asking if we're not already doing that, you know, how much of the shift in remote working, planning, virtual conference events to obviously our disaster recovery approach and beyond become a part of our new normal, you know, like how we adjust and, and to what extent we factor as organizations that have either shifted already to digital and we're able to adjust or they're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm feeling the ramifications of not evolving fast enough to, to be agile and, and make pivots to deal with all these changes in my, in my work environments. We, we all have to consider this. And for me, some of the key lessons to think about specifically as it relates to working with enterprises and, and helping them solve these problems is, does your business have readily available access to public cloud destinations? I think that's super important. This idea that you know clouds have unlimited compute, and I'm thinking very high level here, just factoring on-demand scale in times when you may least expect it, thinking about that and making sure that is either a part of your roadmap, already part of your business continuity, how you can quickly get access to a lot of these public cloud services that you may need in these unforeseen circumstances to shift how your customers get access to you, how your employees can get back into your network and scale that managing VPN capacity, you name it. And then the last thing is, if you're in multiple sites, meaning you have you know, physical p- points of presence in more than one location, does your business have the ability to shift and move data under short lead times? I think that's super important. So you know, a lot of this revolves around using cutting-edge providers that can provide on-demand interconnectivity. And I think that's where we're seeing a, a lot of customers come to us and say, Hey, can you help solve this? And uh, you know, I'll leave you with those two. I think those are two very important ones to consider. Yeah, it strikes me that um, you know most disaster recovery scenarios tend to focus on sort of a, a short, sharp inflection of emergency, not the sort of long, stretched out, transformative experience that we're all undergoing. So that really is going to affect long term planning. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And this flexibility, I think, is key in multiple ways. In that, when we come back. You know, when work restarts, which will happen in the next, you know, few weeks, we're also not going to know what the business environment we're going into. We're not going back to, you know, turning the switch back on and it's 100%. You know, we're going back into an economy which is going to be very different. There's going to be winners. There's going to be losers. Um, it's going to take a while for things to restart. And that uncertainty is going to make planning incredibly difficult. And having flexible options that let me delay decisions. So if you're into owning your infrastructure and deploying your infrastructure, but you're not sure where you're going to be in 12 months, you want to wait. Having flexibility, I think the big thing that I got out of talking here, Misha, was the flexibility. I can turn it on, I can turn it off. The ability to turn it off is equally attractive to me as it is to turn it on because I might need remote desktops now for 10,000 users, but in six months' time it might be down to 5,000 because there's a certain number of people who do need to be in the office on a regular basis or things start to normalise in some sort of way. So not only do I need the ability to turn something on, up, I need also the ability to turn it down and off if that's if my business needs change. Completely agree. There's a big difference between, you know, um, keeping something sustained and always on and then having the means to be able to access things as you need them. And, and, mm. and me, that's true agility. That's, yeah. that's the difference between you being able to do something today and tomorrow, whether it's planned or unforeseen. And I think that's so important. And yes. we're going through something that God knows how long it's going to be, weeks or months. Um, that we need to be prepared for. So I think that makes the difference between supporting your employees, your customers for today and tomorrow. And keep in mind that previous pandemics, we get over the first hump and then there's usually a resurgence, some two or once or twice, quite often twice 
So you could actually see a situation where we go into lockdown like we have now, we come back, the infection then gets back out of control and we go back into lockdown. That is what has happened previously, may not happen this time, but you might want to put that into your planning. And that is where flexibility really starts to count. Yep. So folks want to find out more, Misha, where will you send them? Yeah, sure. So come check us out at mp1.tech slash packet pushers. Learn more about us at megaport.com and feel free to drop me a message anytime at mcitrone at LinkedIn. Okay, we'll have all those links in the show notes. That's mp and then the number one dot tech slash packet pushers plus all the other links Misha mentioned. They'll be in the show notes at packetpushers.net. Thank you, Misha, for joining us and thanks, Megaport, for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>